Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Terrifying Text, Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 29th, 2014. I once had a job interview where I sat at the end of a long table in a big conference room. For 90 long minutes, a dozen professors asked me questions about anything they wanted. Things were rolling along pretty good until one professor tossed me a bomb. He asked, Isn't the idea of God the Father sacrificing his son a form of divine child abuse? Wow, I remember thinking, that's the definition of a zinger. I don't remember what I said, but I didn't get the job. That interview question sounds bizarre, but it comes straight from Genesis 22 for this week. We read, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Abraham bound Isaac, but at the last second an angel intervened. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham then sacrificed a ram that he found in the thicket. And so he passed the test. Few scriptures have provoked more art and anguish more controversy and commentary than Abraham's radical obedience to God's improbable command. Particularly interesting is the long history of Jewish interpretation. How should we read this terrifying text? For the atheist zealot Richard Dawkins, it's an example of religion's barbaric cruelty. In his book, The God Delusion, from 2007, he writes, This disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. I was only obeying orders. Yet the legend is one of the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic religions. Dawkins gets style points for his rhetoric, but instead of engaging the interpretive history of the story, he imagines that ancient people weren't also shocked by the text, and so he resorts to a cheap shot. But what might the story actually mean? Genesis says that God tested Abraham. 
Would he believe that God had really commanded him to sacrifice his son? And if he did believe so, would he act on that conviction? In his book, Fear and Trembling, from 1843, Soren Kierkegaard devoted an entire book to this story. He recalls how he heard this Bible story as a child, and how the older he got, the more his enthusiasm for the story grew, while the less and less he understood the story. He puts himself in Abraham's shoes and shudders as he contemplates how Abraham might have thought, felt, and acted. Kierkegaard imagines four different scenarios. In version one, Abraham tries to protect God by blaming himself for the atrocious command. Isaac lunges at Abraham's legs and begs for his life. When he looks at his father's face, his gaze was wild. His whole being was sheer terror. Abraham then rebukes Isaac. Do you think it is God's command? No, it is my desire. Abraham then prays softly, Lord God in heaven, I thank you. It is better that Isaac believes me a monster than that he should lose faith in you. In version two, Abraham and Isaac journey in total silence. At Moriah, Abraham builds the altar and wields the knife. Then at the last minute, God provides a ram in Isaac's place. In fact, this is how the Genesis narrative unfolds. But Kierkegaard adds a twist by imagining the consequences. Abraham obeyed, and Isaac was saved. But Abraham was deeply traumatized for the rest of his life. He couldn't forget that God had ordered him to do this. His eyes were darkened, and he saw joy no more. He passed the test, but at what cost? In his act of faith, did he lose his faith? Version 3 imagines Abraham's agony at having committed child sacrifice. What could he have been thinking? Abraham threw himself down on his face, prayed to God to forgive him his sin, that he had been willing to sacrifice Isaac, that the father had forgotten his duty to his son. Surely it's the universal ethical duty for parents to love their children and not to murder them. Kierkegaard imagines Abraham concluding that he was mistaken to believe that God had told him to sacrifice Isaac. And finally, an entirely different scenario. Abraham suffers a failure of nerve, an explicit act of disobedience, or conversely, he returns to his senses. In this scenario, Abraham believes the command of God, but he fails to act. He can't bring himself to slay Isaac. And as a consequence, Isaac loses his faith. 
Kierkegaard concludes his four imaginary scenarios by saying, Thus, and in many similar ways, did the man of whom we speak ponder this event. That's an understatement, if ever there was one. Abraham would have been entirely reasonable to conclude that he was being deceived by malign influences, sickness, demons, hallucinations, the infirmities of old age, and that the visions and voices he heard originated not with a loving God, but from some temptation of the worst evil sort. If that was the case, he would have obeyed by dismissing the voices as an illusion. We might also imagine praising Abraham if he had concluded that he had deceived himself through religious zealotry couched in pious platitudes. Today we invoke this rationale to condemn in the harshest terms suicide bombers in Israel and Iraq or Christians who bomb abortion clinics, all of whom claim that God told them to commit some atrocity. The command of God challenged Abraham to embrace the absurd, the irrational, and the unintelligible. What sense did it make to murder the son of promise through whom God had promised to bless all the earth? Abraham had to transcend normal ethical expectations. Good parents love and nourish their children. They don't murder them in religiously inspired violence and then claim that God told me to do it. I doubt that any interpretation of this story will fully satisfy us. It provokes too many disturbing questions. Abraham could not have known the answers to his many questions in advance. And I take that simple observation as an important theme of the story. He acted wholeheartedly without absolute certainty. He acted as a solitary individual with no guarantee of clarity, knowing that he might be horribly wrong and deeply deceived by himself or others, knowing that his actions would merit the opprobrium of his family and community knowing that his act would be irreversible and contrary to everyday standards of ethics and rationality. In his radical obedience, and in the words of Paul in Philippians 2, from which Kierkegaard gets the title of his book, Abraham worked out his salvation, in, worked out his salvation with fear and trembling, before a God who asks everything, absolutely everything, of you and me. For books this week, I review a book by Mark Holborn and Hilary Roberts. It's called The Great War, a photographic narrative. New York, Knopf, 2013, 504 pages.
The heft of this massive volume signals its somber content. Mark Holborn and Hilary Roberts have collected 380 black and white photographs of World War I from the archives of nearly 500,000 photographs in Britain's Imperial War Museums. The volume commemorates the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the Great War with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand on June the 28th, 1914. A hundred years ago, this week. By the time of the armistice on November 11, 1918, 70 million soldiers have been mobilized, 45 million injured, 9 million dead. The photographs capture the global nature of the war. There are pictures of a Nigerian regiment in the German colony of Cameroon. Indian and Senegalese soldiers serving with the French army. And, of course, images of T.E. Lawrence riding camelback in Arabia. You expect to see the horrific violence and appalling degradation, but it's still shocking. The photographs show the changing technology of war with both old and new instruments of violence. Tanks, planes, ships, U-boats, cannons, poison gas, zeppelins, but also horses mired in mud in the infamous trenches. The pictures are a testament to the changing technology and role of photography in war. They're also a reminder that this was not the war to end all wars. In a recent review article about books commemorating the war's centennial anniversary, R.J.W. Evans remarks, all texts that seek to convey the enormity of those times will need to be supplemented by the visual record, as in the haunting and often deeply revealing pictures in this astonishing new collection from London's Imperial War Museum. I would also recommend the YouTube video by Johnny Cash called World War I, When the Man Comes Around, that's based on texts from the book of Revelation. Once again, for the 100th anniversary of the beginning of World War I this week, Mark Holborn and Hilary Roberts, The Great War, a photographic narrative. For movies this week, I review a film from 2014 called Tim's Vermeer. This self-indulgent documentary about the inventor Tim Jennison explores an interesting question about the Dutch painter Jan Vermeer, who died in 1675. Vermeer's photorealistic paintings pop off the canvas with their light and attention to detail. Jennison has a theory about the long-standing controversy about how Vermeer did that. 
so he paints a copy of a Vermeer painting. And lots of this film makes us watch him as he takes 200 days to do so, which was about as exciting as watching paint dry. When he saw his own finished product, he cried on camera. Tim Jennison is a chaotic tech titan with enough money and a private jet for his six-year project. He flies to Holland to soak up Vermeer's vibe, then on to a private audience with the Queen of England to view a single Vermeer painting. But, in fact, he might be onto something when he expands on the theories of the British artist David Hockney, who has proposed that Vermeer painted with the help of optical lenses. Jennison thinks it was a small mirror on a stick. In the final scene, Jennison poses with his oil painting that now hangs in his bedroom. Tim's Vermeer from 2014. And finally, in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of World War I, we've posted a poem by Wilfred Owen, who lived from 1893 to 1918. The title of the poem is in Latin, Dulce et Decorum Est. By some accounts, this is the most famous war poem of World War I. It takes the first words of a Latin saying, meaning it is sweet and right to die for your company, country. Interestingly and tragically enough, the author, Wilfred Owen, was shot and killed on November 4th, one week before the armistice celebrated the end of World War I. Wilfred Owen, Dulce et Decorum Est, bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five-nines that dropped behind. Gas, gas, quick, boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man on fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt 
the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie, dulce et decorum est pro patriae mori. Owen, Wilfred Owen, dulce et decorum est. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 29th, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.